Listeners of the Duck House Podcast, this week we bring to you all hot topics from the past seven days. We have TV debates, the elusive Labour Party position on Brexit, lively chats on electoral reform, that failed Canadian politician, and a good old-fashioned ding-dong on the future of Britain outside of the European Union. Plus, we jump on the bandwagon of making Santa Claus male again. Once again, if you enjoy what we do here on the podcast or commentary at the Mallard, you can always support us on Patreon. Thank you. Listeners, hello and welcome to another episode of the Duck House Podcast. As always, I'm joined by Jake Scott. How are we, mate? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. How about you? I'm very, very well, thank you. Right, well, this week uh, has just been Brexit, Brexit and Brexit, as most weeks sort of are in the news nowadays. Um, But we have had confirmation that there will be a TV debate between uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May over the uh, proposed withdrawal agreement to take place on Sunday the 9th of December. Yet the... The, uh, the two leaders can't agree on what channel it should be hosted on. Jeremy Corbyn wants it on ITV, Theresa May wants it on BBC. <sighs> to me, this whole thing seems just farcical, and I personally think... Yeah, I think the whole debate, or the idea of the debate, is just one of the daftest things I've ever heard. I, I, I don't want this to happen. Um, no. it, yeah, to me, it just seems very stupid. We've got a Remainer trying to sell a Brexit deal. Um, and we've got a Brexiteer trying to say don't go for this deal and perhaps lean towards Remain. But um, yeah, it just seems very stupid. What are your thoughts? Well, I think you've summed it up really. We've got a, a Prime Minister who doesn't believe in what she's trying to deliver. Um, and then that's why, uh, fundamentally, the withdrawal deal is so bad is because she doesn't actually want it to happen. Um and then we've got someone who's meant to be arguing against, um, well, certainly arguing against the proposed deal, but maybe even arguing against Brexit itself. Yeah. And I think the only reason I think Theresa May has done this is to try and force Labour to have an official position. But I don't think it's going to work because Corbyn's not the one on trial here, May is. Right. What Corbyn has to do in the debate is hold her to account, which isn't that hard because her deal is not very good. I, um, I, I, you, you say, it's interesting that you say the uh, it's trying to force sort of Labour's hand. I, I was perhaps wondering whether this debate really is... I mean, obviously, to the Conservative grassroots, Mr Corbyn is the devil. He, he is sort of the Antichrist. Um, but obviously there's a lot of... Uh, opposition to Theresa May in the grassroots as well. A, a lot of them are sort of siding towards Jacob Rees-Mogg and members of the, the ERG. Would it perhaps, or my thinking was anyway, is it perhaps a ploy from Theresa May to say, look, I am I am the person you should put your faith in to uh, to oppose Jeremy Corbyn. I am the one who will be victorious. And this is sort of her not really selling anything to the country, but selling her position to the Conservative grassroots as a way of putting two fingers up to Jeremy Corbyn? If so, I don't think it will work. Ah. Um, 
Well, I, I mean, I could be completely wrong, but that was that seems might be my thinking. But I, I actually, I think that's a good interpretation, and I think that that might be another reason why she's trying to do this. But um, I don't think Theresa May performs all that well in person. Um, you know, no. you, when when you all you've got to do is think back to last year. Um, 18 months ago with the most disastrous campaign in history um, largely down to the fact that she doesn't know how to appear in public <laughs> well, she, she went she's and, the Tory dancing queen what do you mean? Uh, oh good lord <laughs> well that was an embarrassing moment for the whole country really I, I still maintain I quite enjoyed it as, as sort of a, a neutral looking in I, th- I thought it was fair enough to see a, a politician sort of Take the mick out of herself. I quite enjoyed it. Maybe I'm just on my own. <laughs> um, but you know, when when she went to this factory and someone asked her about fox hunting, and she gave a very, very poorly prepared answer, and then when she gave the press release on the dementia tax, and after you turning insisted to the country nothing has changed, she's not someone that can handle herself in person. I think the, right. the only reason that she looks even halfway competent in the Commons is because she's essentially got 300 cheerleaders behind her, half of which don't actually support her. Right. You know, anytime Corbyn comes up and asks a daft question. Well, when was the, uh, the factory and the fox hunting? I don't think I've ever heard that before. It was... Um, was that during was, the campaign? Or? Yeah, it was right at the start of the campaign. And the reason the question was asked was because in the 2015 manifesto, um, David Cameron included the possibility of a free vote on the hunting law. Right, okay. That's that's Uh, almost like... um, I mean, any uh, fans of The Thick of It will sort of remember. It's sort of like... Excuse my French as well. It's kind of like the, the factory worker saying, Do you know what it's like to clean up your mother's piss? (laughs) <laughs> that moment it, it's strange sort of how prophetic that uh, that program can be yeah yeah well i mean did you see the um bbc3 or bbc2 thing about uh boris johnson the other day no no, no it was, so it was, it was uh, it's been doing the rounds on twitter as a uh, you know thick of it live essentially where he stands in front of a camera and gets things wrong about lisbon three times over uh, oh dear you know he he says he says at one point um uh, Portugal's our fourth largest trading partner, and then his um, his PR advisor steps in and says, "No, no, we are Portugal's fourth largest." Oh Portugal's no! On our list. Um, oh. So, but anyway, that's kind of beside the point. The point is, well, actually, maybe it's not beside the point. Maybe the the problem is that politicians are polished constantly, and they they have a public appearance that isn't actually who they are. And when it comes to debates it's between you know, two actually quite uninspiring politicians, the country's just going to be quite bored. Mm. Well, I, I kind I, of... I agree that perhaps they're too polished. However, um, I think they're polished in the wrong departments. And in what sense? As in, you should know those facts. Mm. You should know that. Where When it comes to sort of... Um, I think perhaps they're too polished on... And I, I, I know it... it accounts for a lot of people's perception of uh, a politician but perhaps their public persona so whether they smile whether they look the right way do, are yeah. they sort of 
um, up to date with sort of popular culture. I think they can perhaps be. David Cameron claimed that he supported West Ham when actually he supported Aston Villa. Or yeah, it's it's just sort of like look, just just be who you are. Like you, you don't. I don't think politicians have to be just like every other person. Because to be, to be honest, there is no every other person. Everyone has different interests. Everyone has different personalities. So I just stop trying to be someone you're not. However, you should know those basic facts. Yeah, I, I, that's that's very good point, really. Um, well, I mean, that was something else. Was you know, on this um, behind the scenes look, apparently um, he said uh, something like James Bond himself was born in Estoril. And then again, his, his spin doctor said, "No, the idea for James Bond was born in Estoril." And um, um, Johnson turned around and said, "We well, can't put one thing in my briefing and then tell me the other thing." Yeah. Um, and and uh, yeah, perhaps politicians rely too much on briefings and, and aren't expected to actually know anything. Who gives a flying monkeys where <laughs> Ian Fleming sort of came up with the idea of James Bond? Who cares? <laughs> Oh dear. So yeah, they're they you know they're giving too much attention on air, uh, the wrong things. But anyway, but if we if we draw it back to the uh, the TV debate, how how do you how do you think it will pan out? Do you, do you think Theresa May will be successful in selling her Brexit deal, or will this just sort of be a a further nail in her coffin, or something um, else? Well, again, I think I was listening to a Radio Four program about. Um, this, the withdrawal deal in general and um, Priti Patel was on the panel and she pointed out that Labour have these six tests for any Brexit withdrawal agreement Yeah. Um, none of which this withdrawal agreement passes um, but fundamentally one of them is, is almost impossible to pass by design um, and this will essentially I think this will be Corbyn's line of attack is that you know, one of these six uh, fundamentally, these six points come down to protecting workers' interests, which you can't ignore. They are is a very important part of the debate, and yeah. I think that would be something that he'll really punish her along, uh, punish her with, um, along the lines of where is the protection for British workers? And I think if he takes that line, he will win. He'll, he'll you know, preach to his own supporters, and he'll win over voters who. Um, who might have thought that Theresa May would be on their side, you know, people that actually voted to leave because, for them, um, the economic situation in Britain has deteriorated and has left them vulnerable. Mm. Um, um, it should be interesting, just for just for the sake of our listeners who may not know, the uh, the six tests for um, Brexit, or, the, or what they want Brexit to, to pass, is that... Um, that they ask, does it ensure a strong and collaborative future relationship with the EU? Um, does it deliver the exact same benefits as we currently have as members of the Single Market and Customs Union? Uh, does it ensure the fair management of migration in the interests of the economy and communities? Uh, the fourth one is, does it defend rights and protections and prevent a race to the bottom? Uh, does it protect national security and our capacity to tackle cross-border crime? And finally, uh, does it deliver for all regions and nations of the United Kingdom. Um, it's interesting that, um, I mean, last week, Keir Starmer was talking to Evan Davis on Radio 4, and he was just sort of saying that, um, you know, that, that this withdrawal agreement fails to uh, 
f- f- fails to deliver on the on the six key points. But then uh, Evan Davis kind of came back and said, "Well, you know, the, the Tories have made concessions. They they are trying to meet those. But what guarantees if you if per se if they the Labour Party were to deal with the European Union, what was to say that they could?" deliver a brexit deal with those to which he, he was just very quiet and just said oh we'll, we'll vote it down anyway i do worry and uh, I, I do worry that the labor position is just let's bring down the government mm. which and obviously if the roles were reversed i i couldn't guarantee that any other party would wouldn't do the same but there does seem to be an abandonment of working in the national interest which i i tend to find as Suspicious from a party, as someone who is a, a, a neutral. Mm. I think you're right. I think it's um, it, 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 yeah. I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that the Tories wouldn't do the same as Labour. Yeah. Um, because at the end of the day, they can they're concerned with winning elections, not actually concerned with the national interest. Yeah. Um. But again, this is almost it's it's almost because that, you know, Labour are so distanced from the, the actual process of negotiation that they can almost say anything they want. Um, this, this whole six tests, first of all, operate on the assumption that we can go to Brussels and say whatever we want, demand whatever we want. Um, personally, I think we should have taken a stricter stance in the negotiations with what we want. Um, but it does seem to think so. It does seem to appear that Labour thinks we can go and just demand whatever we want, um, and that's fundamentally not how negotiations work. But it, to be fair, isn't that what the Tory Brexiteers were saying anyway? Like no, after the, after the election, you had people like Liam Fox saying, "You know, this will be the easiest trade deal and agreement." You had leading Brexiteers say, "Oh, the European Union will come to us, and they will mm. sort of." Bow to our bow to our needs, and actually that hasn't been the case at all as we we've found over the past two years. Mm. Um, I, I I think the I think really if anything that the Labour sort of um, six tests rely it is kind of a backhanded way of just saying let's just stay in the EU. Yeah, it, it's almost makes a Brexit deal. That isn't staying in the EU impossible. Um, but well, yeah, the, the, the clause about um, having the same same privileges or something that we've had before. Uh, yeah, the second one is: does it deliver the exact same benefits as we currently have as members of the single market and customs union? Well, no Brexit agreement is going to deliver that because no Brexit agreement can deliver that. Right. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's almost a it's a subtle way of suggesting that they're on the side of leaving when in reality they just want to stay in. Yes. Well, we've, in the past couple of days as well, we've had uh, John McDonnell, um, who always tends to get us on the back foot when we talk about him, but he's recently said that um, should this uh, withdrawal agreement not pass through the Commons... Um, that a second referendum is almost inevitable. Mm. I, I imagine you didn't take to those uh, comments too kindly. No. No. <laughs> Straight up, just no. <laughs> um, 
I didn't take to the comments too too kindly. But the thing is, I, I, I can't disagree with the certain level of logic in there. Yeah. Um, we. The problem is that there has been no campaigning the other way. Um, all we have is a prime minister who comes out and says, we're not having a second referendum. And almost by taking it off the table, you make the argument worse. Rather than standing there and arguing against it by allowing one side to argue in favour of another referendum or a people's vote, whatever you want to call it um, and without giving an argument in response, all you do is, is encourage the population one way so as it stands right now, I, I don't think John McDonnell is wrong right. but I think he should be and that's my problem <laughs> you, you don't like the fact that you happen to side with McDonnell no, I do not at all. Yeah. I mean, no. his comments will say that uh, the Labour Party itself will inevitably uh, support the second referendum, which is... Um, it'll be interesting to see what, what Corbyn sort of has to say on that, because so far he's really sort of one of the only people in the Labour Party really sort of um, distancing himself from the second referendum. But we shall yeah. see. But then it, that second re referendum becomes such a uh, complicated and convoluted issue. Well, again, I think this Radio 4 programme I was listening to had, um, I can't remember which MP it was, but it was an MP from the Labour Party. And the panel, the, 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 um, the interviewer essentially said, let's imagine that the, the, the deal is voted down by the middle of December. Right. Uh, Parliament goes into recess. Parliament comes back in January. Labour pushes for a general election. It's passed in the Commons. Um, how are you going to have a general election, a negotiation process, and a signed withdrawal agreement in the space of eight weeks? Yeah. Um, and, 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 and this, you know, the panellists turned around and said, well, if we don't get a general election, then we'll push for a second referendum. And she said, okay, but then the same question. In the space of eight weeks, how do you campaign for a, a referendum, get the referendum, get the referendum decided, and then either re-begin negotiations or cancel them? Um, so practically, it's too late. You know, we've um, we, we've missed the boat. We, we, we can't go back on ourselves. And at the end of the day, if we did go back on ourselves, the European Union would punish us worse than they currently are. They're not going... Labour's six tests... We're going to fail one of them if we go back in because we're not going to enjoy the same privileges that we used to. Yeah. Well, I, I think this is sort of, without actually admitting to it, I think this is confirmation that really Labour want to stay in the European Union. Mm. But by providing these six tests, they don't actually have to openly say, mm. we back staying in. Um, which can be quite uh, an intelligent ploy by them, really. Um, but yeah. We'll have to see what happens. Um, Mark Carney has come out and said that uh, Britain is in no way in the position to uh, afford a a no deal Brexit deal. Um, and Jacob Rees-Mogg has sort of come out throwing his toys out of the pram, saying that Mark Carney's a sort of a second-rate Canadian or a failed Canadian politician, and now he's trying to get involved in British politics um, and, and to a certain extent like the, the Bank of England should remain impartial however um, I think it's quite right to say if 
that if there is a no deal Brexit on the horizon, that there will be economic, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Economic, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uncertainty? We'll go with uncertainty. I was thinking of another word, but yeah, we'll go with that. Um, Do you think he was right in coming out and sort of saying that or saying what he did? Um, I, I, in, in, in part, yes, because the Bank of England is responsible for ensuring a, a sort of steady economy, I guess. Um, and part of that will be the occasional public statement. Um, you know, we, I, I think I think they have to remain independent in the sense that if if this was the, their findings. They should publish it regardless of who's in government and regardless of um, which way we were going. Yeah. Um, and I think if anyone has compromised the Bank of England's neutrality in this, it actually has been Rhys Mogg. Because by turning around and saying, you know, you're, you're being partisan, he's almost politicising their statement as right. if you know, they, they wouldn't make this statement if Labour were in government or something to that effect. And I just I just think, you know, you've almost got to say, OK, well, thank you for making the statement. However, it doesn't really make much difference to what we want to do. Yeah, I, I, I think accusing them of being or accusing him of being a second rate politician is not necessarily fair. The man is the governor of the Bank of England. He's not second rate at all. The, where Carney's contestations have come from, uh, Theresa May's Chequers Brexit plan um, has sort of, or estimations for the, the Brexit plan have said that the UK economy could be up to 3.9% smaller after 15 years um, compared with staying in the EU. Um, a no deal Brexit was found to hit the economy uh, perhaps by up to 9.3%. Um, the Bank of England, where which is where uh, Carney comes in, uh, said on Wednesday that the UK economy could shrink by uh, 8% in the immediate aftermath of Brexit. I think he sort of made the headlines yesterday by saying this would be the, the greatest recession since uh, the, the 1930s and 40s. Um, but, it, you know, it, it is important to know these facts. Um, and again, it sort of comes to our conversation last week when we were talking about do we do we accept that the Brexit referendum was voted along political lines? And therefore, do we have to almost turn a blind eye to the the economic ramifications, which is difficult because we we do have to admit that if we leave the European Union, there there could well be significant ramifications of doing so. Although the one thing to avoid as well, uh, I I don't well I'll call him out. Not that he's going to hear this, but um, David Lammy tweeted this week, complete propaganda and by saying that um i mean he, he tweeted sort of the bbc news uh link and said that the uh the annual recession of the british economy would be 3.9 uh percent which obviously no one has suggested that it'll be 3.9 percent annually um i just wish politicians wouldn't lie so so badly if you're gonna lie at least do it properly yeah, I don't know quite where he's got this idea from. I do, I do wonder, does 
Did he do that deliberately, or was he just being a bit thick, and was it just an honest mistake? Um, Not Lam- that Lamptey has a history it. of being a bit thick, so I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> How's he got history? There was a there was a video of him stood in London saying something like, um, "I haven't. I've, I've been stood here for two hours now, and I haven't seen a single police officer." Um, well, he said this in the background. There was a police officer. Yeah. Um, you know. And he he did tweet on remembrance. He dead. tweeted on Remembrance Day that we would all stand still on uh, what was it the eleventh month? Was it the eleventh day of the eleventh month? Um, 11-11. It's like, no, not 11-11, you idiot. <laughs> but, yeah, daft. But, uh, but here we, so, we're, I mean, as I was sort of alluding to, we're, we're sort of drawn back to this debate as to whether, no, do, do we continue along the political lines that the mandate for leaving the European Union was voted upon, or do we have to accept that there will be economic ramifications, and to what extent do we try and soften that blow? Well, Again, I think people were generally, um, again, the Lord Ashcroft poll two days after the referendum found that people were generally prepared to take a short-term economic hit for a long-term political gain. Um, And you can almost, you know, there is some credence to turning around and saying, you know, okay, so you want to shoot shoot yourself in the foot, but at least it was you that shot yourself. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the criticism of these these arguments, and that's a fair criticism to make. Um, but at the same time, I don't think you can discount it because if if we do ignore the fact that political reasons were the main motivation behind voting leave, then I think it will only lead to further disillusionment and um, and greater political upheaval because people will not take this lying down. Well, this is this is my uh, worry almost. I mean, the historian Neil Ferguson, sort of a hero of mine, often talks about the counterfactual: is what happens if actually we don't leave the European Union? Um, I I cannot begin to imagine the sort of outbreak of anger no. across this country. I I know, I know the the Remain side or that the supporters of remaining in the European Union are quite active and obviously they make themselves heard mm. but I I, I I yeah I do think that the the Leave campaigners will just be utterly outraged and I, I think that part of the problem is if we do stay in the European Union I think there'll be large portions of working class people who already thought that the system was against them yeah. This will just be confirmation of that, especially in their eyes. Pretty much. Yeah. I think, interestingly enough, I've just pulled up the... Um, well, this was from the Bank of England's disorderly Brexit scenario analysis. Right, OK. Uh, GDP drops 8%. OK. House prices fall 30%. Right. Commercial property prices plunge 48%. Woo! Sterling falls 25% to below parity with the dollar. Oh, wow. Unemployment rises to 7.5%. Right. Percent. Inflation accelerates to 6.5%. Eesh. Yeah. Um, the Bank of England benchmark rate rises to 5.5% and averages 4% over three years. 
Right. And this was the kicker. Britain goes from net migration to net outflows of people. So we go from having more people come in than leave to the other way around. Um, not entirely sure I believe that. You know, the current migration statistics suggest we'd have to have an, an annual emigration of about 200,000 people a year for that to change. Yeah. Um, unless immigration drops below, I think it was 150,000. Right. Um, but, you know, maybe this is a very selfish thing to say. But looking at this doesn't seem all that bad to me. Really? For a generation that complains about having no possibility of buying a house, to have a third of house, a third fall off your house price, to have unemployment rise only by three percent, and to have acceleration only increase by four percent, it generally looks as though this actually might benefit working class people. Really? I mean, I'm not an economist, and I'm probably speaking out of my ass, but it generally looks like, you know, prices would go down while inflation would go up right mm. I, I, i'm not sure if there's any benefit to how house prices uh decreasing by up to 30 percent. that's monumental i mean that and it especially hurts people who are trying to buy as well i think instead of invigorating a house market you'll just stagnate it even further well yeah it, because yes it, 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 in, in terms of price it may, you know, house prices will seemingly become more affordable, but people aren't going to be selling those houses. No, that's true. It's just uh, going to hit. If it's going to hit anyone hardest, it's going to hit the middle class. Perhaps. And uh, if you're talking about the value of the pound, if that's going to be decreased, then people, you know, people aren't. You're going to get less sort of less value to what you can buy. So, it, in a way, that that certainly won't invigorate a, a sort of a housing market either um, no, good point. so I, I don't think that's any way of sort of solving any housing crisis but um doesn't this just generally mean that the uk economy as a whole will be worse off but actually people's individual experiences will be roughly the same they'll have less money but prices will fall um but then how much did you say inflation will rise by no uh, six well, currently it's at two percent. It's currently at um, two point five one percent. So in, in, increased by four percent. Yeah. So if inflation trebles, that's, yeah. that, I don't see how that can be a positive. The only thing I really don't see an issue with is the is the unemployment rate, and that's because the most severe um, point of the recession had us at seven. Point nine percent, right? Uh, but even, well, okay. even in two thousand and eleven, we had eight point four. You know, it's only in the last, from the looks of things, four years that we've had anything of a unemployment recovery, so to speak. So we, yeah, we'd be going, we'd be going to. I, I don't, I'm not entirely convinced that this would be all that much worse than the 2008 recession. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying, I, I'm going back on myself, what I said a minute ago, I'm not saying a recession is, is going to be good, no. but it seems as though it's not going to be all that much worse than 2008 was. Perhaps that's what I was trying to say. You know, that recession that we experienced. Yeah, but but that, that was the worst, well, that was the worst recession since wartime, wasn't it? 
Yeah, it was. Uh, um, and we're we're sort of floating something. Ah, oh, well, at least it'll be only a little bit worse than that. I mean, that that's not a good precedent. <laughs> okay, good point. But a lot of people that you speak to say, well, you know, my life hasn't got all that much wor- all that much better in the last ten years. No, I, I think that's an important point to make. It's um, it's sort of you know that there there is a sort of a, a poor working class that voted because they thought it can't get much worse. I mean, you're, you're telling the poor that oh, you're just going to stay poor. Well, it, it's not really going to deter them much. I don't think. Perhaps. I mean, obviously, I I, I don't want to speak for anyone. Um, but perhaps that is an issue. Um, that you, you're not going to sway. You're not going to sway those people from being Brexiteers to remain. Um, no. And I think the one saving grace in all this is that, obviously, economists do, on the whole, get things wrong. Well, yeah, but I, I don't think that's necessarily a, a case to not listen to them. No, um, I think you're right. But at the same time, it's, you know, to, to say that... Um, Okay, well let's 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 put it another way then. Um, when the Leave campaign was going on during the Brexit referendum and, the, and Project Fear and all the rest, yeah, yeah. Um, people said that the economy would be much much worse off than this. Right. This it would it, we'd lose what was it fifty billion pounds worth of trade or something to that effect. Right. Um, and the GDP would drop a lot more than eight percent. I, I just, you know, I, I, I just I remain sceptical because this is apparently going to be the worst recession recession we've ever experienced, and even this is less bad than Project Fear. So, if in the if in, if so much has changed in the last two years, well, what's to say that so much isn't going to change in the next seven to eight months? And mm-hmm. I just I just remain sceptical. Um, and if it happens, then. I will hold my hands up and say, "Okay, I was wrong," and obviously they were right. But I, I, I just I, I remain sceptical. Yeah. The issue is speaking in terms of absolutes. I mean, we we don't know, mm. but cer- certain signs, obviously, in my eyes, are fairly. Uh, I mean, they, there are signs that that are worrying, um, and I do I do fear that perhaps leading Brexiteers in Parliament are just going a bit too gung-ho um, and I think Reese Monk's comments were a bit uh, a bit childish um, but you know we shall see we shall see what happens and uh, obviously we have the debate to look forward to mm. whether it's on, I mean they still got to decide what bloody channel it's got to be on <laughs> I, I, I was going to say th- this is one of my problems with the, the debate um, I don't. Well, actually, there are there are multiple problems. I, I wish Theresa May would just, if she was so confident in her deal, why does she want it on BBC? Like, obviously, ITV. I think, I think it would be sensible to say that ITV will get more viewers just because I'm a celebrities on afterwards. I think I think they will get more viewers if if she wants the BBC, then um. Yeah, I think she's kind of shying away. She's not overly confident in her in her ability to to win over the the national viewpoint. My other, but on the flip side, I do kind of 
I do sympathise with Theresa May because, and this is completely his prerogative, 99.9% of the time. However, I can very easily see Jeremy Corbyn uh, swaying the debate from Brexit to just a uh, an hour of saying, oh, this is what the Tories do, let's get rid of the Tories, let's ditch them, let's ditch the government. And it, it very much loses its focus. Um, and obviously, as an autonomous leader and party, that's completely his right to do so, but perhaps not for this. So I can see if... Ter- I, I can understand why Theresa May might think, well, if it's on ITV more people have got an opportunity to watch Jeremy Corbyn do this. Um, I just think the whole debate is such a stupid idea, though. Mm. It's so daft. I think, like I say, I, I, I just think we're going to have a really strange situation where a Remainer is trying to sell a Brexit deal to a Brexiteer who's heading a Remainer party. Yeah. Um, it's perhaps, you know what, it might be a really, really good symbol of the way British politics has evolved. Um, with people trying to sell things they don't really believe in anymore. Yeah, it's it's so daft. What a, what a just messed up situation we've got ourselves into. Dissolve just, all the parties, that's what I say. Dissolve them all. Yeah, but what comes instead? Uh, Monarchy rule? Because I'm all for that. No, no. <laughs> I love Queenie, but no. Um, do you know what? I was... I was I was talking to someone about this the other day, and I'm really starting to believe in this now, that we should have PR. No, good lord, no. Why not, though? The, the country comes together, and I think works better when we have I... coalitions, or, or we move, or we have some sort of centre ground where people can work with each other. Because I think that that's, that's the theory. The reality tends to prove otherwise. Does it in Britain? Okay, so... Generally, coalitions that form in this country form because because of um, first-past-the-post, not in spite of it. You know, the coalitions tend to be um, a, an actual, a fairly accurate representation of the mood of the country. And I think you're right, you know, that the, the uh, 2010 to 2015 coalition was a good um, sort of, uh, moderating influence on, yeah. on part of the politics. But if you look across the pond to Germany and to, um, sorry, across the channel, and then I look over in South America and Brazil, you have situations where governing parties are actually very, very small uh, in Parliament. And even in Brazil, the president, Jair Bolsonaro, which is, you know, topic for another podcast probably, uh, is the president while his party is the second largest party. Uh, and obviously, in um, well, it's not proportional representation in America, but it's you know a slightly more evolved version of first past the post. I, I just think all it does is lead to, <laughs> ironically enough, coalitions of chaos. But I mean, haven't you said in the past that the conservative position is not to base off of other nations? No, good point. Um, but at the same time, the conservative uh, position is to say, "Well, we have something that works." But but this is my point. Does first past the post work? I mean, that I mean, the great argument for first past the post is that we get strong government, and that hasn't really happened since what two thousand five. Um, I think we had a, a relatively strong government for about a year after the general election. Well, but but obviously it wasn't that strong. 
No, I, I think I, again. I think the government was strong. I just think that um, it, it was. It didn't want to the result that it got. Okay, so so for a year, out <laughs> you know for for one year since what two thousand five, we've had a strong government. It, it's not the greatest selling point for first past the post. But at the same time, we've had five years of coalition out of nearly eighty years of government. Okay, okay. I, I think, you know, yeah, okay. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because we've had 10 years of, well, not even 10, we've had ten, um, seven years of relative political instability in terms of first past the post, doesn't mean that we can discount the, the, the 70 years before that. No, no, no. I think, I think, if anything, first past the post is really good at recognising the mood of the country. Because if the country is not... United, but doesn't PR do a perfect job of that? No, I think PR complicates it further by introducing extremist voices into Parliament. But that's a representation of the mood of the country, is it not? It's okay. Um, I think proportional representation is a more acceptable um, approach to a democratic body when you have a stronger undemocratic body counterweighing it. Right. Because you can't have... Proportional representation opens the door to populism quite wide. Um, uh, but isn't our opposition a left-wing populist as well? And first-past-the-post could deliver him a, you know, some sort of government. Well, it, <laughs> the leader of the opposition is a populist. The party's not necessarily populist. Perhaps not. Perhaps not. But I think... When you look at um, populists in proportional representation countries, proportional representation gives them the possibility to pr- to give them some level of political credibility, and then it opens the door for them to actually win a, a, a wider democratic election. Which, as I say, is not necessarily a problem if there's an undemocratic body um, checking and balancing against it. Right. You know, in America, you've got the Supreme Court, which is okay. It's it's, it's semi democratic in the sense that it's appointed by, by the Senate. But fundamentally, you've also got the Constitution, which is an undemocratic body. Well, it's, it's, it's appointed by the President and then ratified by the Senate. Okay, yeah. But again, that, that kind of proves that it's a political process more than um, right. a legal process. Yeah. Um, but even if the Supreme Court is compromised, the, the Constitution is there as the, the greatest undemocratic counterweight to any kind of democratic revolution so to speak um, and if you have a, a purely democratic system then you open the door to well as I say um, populists which abuse the system that they find themselves in um, Jan Werner Muller's book What is Populism uh, makes a very good point that populists when they're in power they use democracy or they use the most purest form of democracy possible to get into power but then when they're there, they do their best to dismantle it. Right. So my concern with proportional representation is there is not enough of a counterweight in this country anymore to stop an overwhelmingly democratic, and I mean that in the, in the strictest sense, um, revolution. Right. And obviously a lot of people, they think democracy is good regardless, but I'm, I'm not one of those people. <laughs> no, I, th- I think I... Worked that out several several months ago. 
But that's, yeah. that's purely because democracy in its strictest sense is tyranny of the majority. Yeah. This, this was what the early 19th century political theorists were so concerned with, was how do you stop tyranny of the majority? And that the easiest answer is an undemocratic element in the Constitution, whether that is, in, in the case of America, the Constitution itself, or as we had in this country, the aristocracy, and then increasingly the monarchy. Um, but even they have had their powers waned so much that there's not anything that we can do anymore if uh, if we have a real democratic revolution. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's an interesting topic of conversation. Mm. Um, and as, a, as a topic of conversation, it's actually worth pointing out that we have never had a democratic revolution in this country. And I don't mean that in the sense of a revolution. I mean in the sense that we haven't had any kind of major democratic upheaval. At least Brexit might be the only circumstance. Yeah, I'm trying to think of another case, but I'm struggling. It's been a slow decline from aristocratic rule to democratic rule, but we've never had a democratic revolution to speak of. No. Huh. Mm. Anyway, moving on. We, um... We, we now like to end the podcast with sort of a, a politically correct uh, sort of idea or news story. Just, you know, sort of lighten the mood a bit. And um, well, this week we're going to go with the mopeds, um, which has proven to be a point of contestation, as everything does seem to be in uh, society these days. Um, so obviously everyone's probably seen the news story about um, the police trying to uh, tackle... Um, moped crime by ramming into them uh ramming in sorry into the uh the criminals um much people much people many people seem to be quite uh in favor of this um the metropolitan police has said that there's been a 36 percent reduction in uh i can never say this word thefts we there we go um i always get me me ths and fs confused um sorry so there's been a 36 percent reduction in the crimes uh, involved with mopeds or scooters uh, since the tactics were deployed last year. Um, obviously, a, a lot of people, as, as mentioned, have come out and said, like, this this is good, this is sort of uh, the police not being sort of wishy-washy, trendy-wendy PC uh, arbiters. And some people have sort of taken the view that is this perhaps uh, a degree of police brutality or extreme police violence? Um, it certainly does seem to be a pragmatic view uh, or move, sorry, by the police. Um, but I think the important question should be, is this a short-term solution or is this actually a long-term policy? Hmm. Well, so you're right. I think, I think first of all, um, when I first heard of it as a, um, as a tactic of, of stopping theft, I, I was a little bit sceptical. Um, I, I, I did think, you know, if you're putting people, people's safety on the line, even, well, on the one hand, yeah, you can't put anyone's safety on the line. But on the other hand, they are criminals. And um, criminals are entitled to certain things, but they're not entitled to um, freedom from consequence. And, um, and then when I watched a video of one of these mopeds being rammed, it was actually... While they were about, they were stationary, waiting at a, um, a light. Um, 
and then another time was when they were going only about 10 miles an hour and I, again listen to a program on radio 4 about it and the, um oh, i can't remember who it was but it was someone from the met who said we do this at very low speeds yeah and only when the target is confirmed as the um as, as the burglar or the, or the thief right um and I thought, well, like you said, you know, if it works, it works. And you've, you've got to think about other um, alternatives. You know, the, typically when you're trying to stop um, what would essentially be automobiles, you, you use spikes. Um, but that's not very good for, A, built-up areas, and B, for um, motorcycles or mopeds, because it works for a car, because obviously the, the driver is... It's safely insulated in the car, but for a rider on a moped or a motorbike, it's not going to work. They're going to be thrown off. Yeah. So actually, it's going to be damaging them more than if you if you just knock them off. Um, the other alternative is is more bodily contact, which is where you you know you put rope across the the street and you take them out as they drive into the road, um, which is even worse. So considering this is um, this is perhaps one of the big uh, crimes facing Londoners at the moment it, like you say it seems to be a very pragmatic approach um, and perhaps it has to be a long term solution because they they clearly haven't had any success with anything else mm. yeah I mean I, I, that, that's the point it, it does seem to provide a short term solution but I think really we should avoid sort of further police violence um, and I mean, you you mentioned the spikes, and the police have said that they are deploying uh, sort of new mobile spikes that are very quick and easy to use. Um, and perhaps that is a better way to go about things. Um, it it just seems I mean, a lot of people. I, I think Diane Abbott came out and said that the police aren't above the law. Um, and I know I know it's fashionable for people who don't like the left to sort of criticise anything Diane Abbott says and trust me, I love a sort of a, a maths meme with Diane Abbott as much as the next man the the 58th of January or whatever, but um, I, I, I do kind of agree with her I, I, is, is there an important point like, to be made? Are the police above the law? I, I kind of think no, I think they are the law but I don't think they can be above it well, no. Fundamentally, they can't be because then they're not. You know, you're, you're not living by your own word, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, um, obviously, you need to tackle crime. I I, I get it. But yeah. are there perhaps more moral and ethical ways to do so? No. <sighs> I, I think we've kind of. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm 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 one who believes in you know, more than necessary force because necessary force is almost a, um, it's a very after the event justification. You know, you don't know what is appropriate force until after it's needed, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, someone breaks into your home and your legal right is to use whatever means necessary, not, not, sorry, not whatever means necessary, um, reasonable force or you know like for like force so to speak to stop it from happening you you don't know whether that 
burglar is armed, for instance. So if, if a burglar came into your home unarmed, then you're relatively within your rights to restrain them and, and call the police. If they come in and they are armed and you go to restrain them and they injure you, then obviously you, know, you have the power of hindsight and saying, well, I wish I'd picked something up, but you don't know that until it's happened. Yeah. So for me, I'm quite of the opinion that you know, in the moment, you need to do whatever is necessary to prevent that crime from taking place. Um, so if this is necessary, then that, to me, is the justification. I, and I, I think it is proving to be necessary. Yeah. Yeah, well. Well, we said we'd end on a uh, sort of entertaining, politically correct issue. So here we go. From Olivia Petter in The Independent this week. She asked a question, or actually, no, she doesn't ask the question. She sort of raised the point about questions that have been asked this week about whether women should perform as Santa Claus. Um, in her report, it starts with, Christmas controversies are afoot in the northern town of Newton Aycliffe, where a member of the local council is trying to prevent women from performing as Santa Claus in an annual parade. Uh, now, this is very much divided opinion. Uh, for those who can sort of be bothered to get involved in this debate. Um, so, well, one of the arguments uh, is that for, this comes from Labour councillor uh, Aaron Chandran, who says, My understanding is that Santa Claus, otherwise called Father Christmas, amongst other names, is a male role. Um, yep. And he added that, adding that children will be expecting a male Santa uh, and that it may well reflect badly on the council were they uh, to choose a woman as a form of political correctness. Mm. Do you believe in the tradition that Santa Claus should be male? Or are you Mr. Metropolitan who thinks that Santa Claus can be anyone? You know what? I think you can guess. <laughs> yeah, um, I know. It was kind of a leading question. <laughs> um, what's wrong with Mrs. Claus? Well, that's, that's kind of what I thought. I mean, I'm sort of of the opinion that I couldn't really care less, but there is sort of, there is Father Christmas and there is Mrs. Claus, who is, you know, uh, their, their own independent character. But um, as we were saying with the, the comics last week, sort of every, everyone has to be the same now, don't they? So. Well, from what I, when I was younger, the, the grottos that I went to, you'd have Father Christmas, who sat, lap you sat on, um... And then you'd have Mrs. Claus who would pass in the, the presents. Yeah. Um, see, some would have, you know, the elves, so to speak. Um, but this doesn't seem... This, this to me, is a non-issue. It, it's... What's, okay, what's wrong with having um, Mrs. Claus at the grotto instead of having Father, Claus, uh, Father Christmas? Um, you know, you, you can't sit on their lap anymore anyway because that's apparently illegal. Um, so... It's not an issue of sitting on a woman's lap. Yeah. Um, so just have a woman there as Mrs. C Mrs. Claus, you know. Or as if you want to be, if you do want to be metropolitan and modern, Mother Christmas. But that, <laughs> you know, oh, you I love that. Mother, mother Christmas. Your Mother Nature. Your Father Time. You have um, Father Christmas. You know, if if you turn around and said Father Nature, I'm pretty sure people would be like, "Well, hang on a minute, no." I'm trying to mother make nature. nature masculine. Ugh. <laughs> you know, it, what can't is is nothing. This might sound ridiculously outdated, but is nothing sacred. 
are we are we are we so terrified of uh, of offence that we can't make the make the case? Yeah. No. Yeah. It doesn't offend anyone to have Father Christmas there. Well, perhaps it does. Perhaps it does. I mean, but I wouldn't be offended if Mother, if, if Mrs. Claus was there instead. Yeah. No, I'd, you know, no I. At the end of the day, this is a nice event for children where they get to see Father Christmas giving out presents. Yeah. Why on earth do we have to make that a political issue? I know. I know. Well, luckily, from the impression that I'm getting is that actually this isn't too big a deal, and most people sort of, you know, are sticking to the the ideal of Father Christmas and Santa Claus. But um, it's just trying to take the fun out of Christmas, isn't it? Yeah. It's a bit Cromwellian, really. Soon they're going to well, ban mince pies. And... We live we live in a world where the Puritans come from the left now. Oh, that's lovely imagery. Well done. <laughs> Oh no, mate. Yeah, it's uh, they are sucking the fun out of things sometimes. Well, right. I say sometimes, quite often. <laughs> More often than you'd like to, you'd like to admit. Yes. Yeah. Ah well. Well, we don't have to start a campaign saying "Save our Santa." That's fine. <laughs> Save our Santa. Yeah. L- luckily, I, I, even the uh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, um, she came out and said that. You know, this is people just trying to ruin Christmas. Because I, I think this kind of opened like a wider debate now, sort of, as things do. But um, luckily, for one more year at least, it seems to be not that big a deal. Mm. So there we go. We can enjoy, enjoy good old Father Christmas. Mm. <laughs> anyway. Go to the grotto. Go to your local grotto. Do they still have them? I bloody hope so. Yeah. Every garden centre used to have a grotto. Yeah. But then even then, garden centres are a thing of the past. Yeah, well, yeah. I used to hate going. <laughs> Absolutely miserable places. No, I, I used to like it. I used to go running. Well, my, my garden centre had a huge train set display. Really? Yeah, so it'd be yeah. quite nice. My parents would go and get whatever they needed to get, and I'd go and look at the trains for an hour. That's great. That yeah, was fantastic, and then it was, um, and then it was bought by a limousine company owner, and it was completely shut down. Oh. Yeah, it was really quite upsetting. Our uh, our garden centre had an outside pond with three dead goldfish. <laughs> oh. That's upsetting. Surely they have fish in the garden centre they could replace them with. Uh, it was kind of back at heel. It wasn't that good. Oh. Yeah. Oh well, they could have just got fake fish. That would have been better. <laughs> Oh well. Anyway, we'll leave it there for that week or this week. I can't talk today. <laughs> oh, oh well. Hopefully, it'll be an improvement next week. But uh, thank you once again for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>